Well, it's kind of hard to believe that uh, this weekend represents, this morning represents week six of our Thriving in Babylon series, and we are finishing it up today. And if you haven't been able to be here or tune in, I'd love for you to go back and watch slash listen to these messages. Uh, just an inspirational figure in Daniel, but he's not our ultimate hero, and we'll end with that today, what I mean by that. And you probably know what I mean by that or know where I'm going to go with that. And I hope that uh, hearts can be convinced of that very um, vital reality. Um, today we're going to preach one of, it's in the top five most popular stories in all the Bible. And when I first heard from Mrs. Schultz of the story uh, in Sunday school about Daniel and the lion's den, I was perplexed and kind of bothered by it. I had a couple of questions. Who would throw Daniel in this den of lions? And then secondly, what did he do wrong? Because there's something in every child's heart that says, if you do what is good, you'll be rewarded. If you do what is wrong, you'll be punished. I think we learned that from well-meaning parents. But then you live life and you get further along in it and you realize that that's not always true. Uh, how many of us can be so disillusioned when we see the apparent opposite of that being true? When we see people doing evil, doing bad, and there seem to be winning and people uh, like us that are doing good are in pits and are in places that's very painful. And I think of the, you know, I refer people to the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23, but I also refer people more and more to the 73rd Psalm, Psalm 73, that where the writer says, um, I envied, as I, as I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he, he just writes in a very exaggerated tone. By the way, if you're ever depressed and you're cynical, you exaggerate. Uh, somebody needs to tell you that. You exaggerate your problems. I'm not saying the problems aren't real, but you think they're just permeating you. You think they're permanent and that there's no way out of the pit. And it's so easy to do that. And if you read the 23rd Psalm, it's the opposite. At least the first 90% of it is the opposite of Psalm 23, where he writes and he's just like, man, these people are doing bad and they just look how they're winning. And they, they don't hurt. Their bodies doesn't hurt. They're, they're succeeding and everything's going their way. And then look at me. Why should I even bother? to do good because of my hurt. When you and I live long enough, we're just going to learn, and most of us have already, that life is, doesn't operate uh, with that conventional type of wisdom. And my question, hey, who threw him in? My two questions, who threw him in the lion's den, and what did he do wrong? It was rudely intrusive in my little brain and heart to learn that Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, not for doing something wrong, but for doing something right. And so today I want us to look at this story. We're going to pick it up in just a moment uh, in chapter 6. And I want to uh, put this big thought before you because we all have our pits. We all have our dens. We all have our lions. We all have pain that we uh, experience in our lives. There's no better opportunity than what you have in your greatest difficulty. Opportunity, opportunity to honor God. Opportunity to influence other people an opportunity to say that I'm a testimony because do you ever come to church and sing songs like we've sung and you feel detached from them if you and maybe you wonder your thoughts float and you think is anybody right on this row where I'm sitting do they believe this is this a part of their testimony and I want you to elevate your thinking that there's no better opportunity than what you have in your greatest difficulty. The greatest difficulty is the, the place that you want to quit, the place that, you, that you're growing weary, the place that you want to throw in the towel is the very place that you could have your greatest opportunity. 
So with that, let's focus in on Daniel and uh, this phrase, under new management. You ever seen this sign somewhere? You go in and if uh, it's a place you like and you see the under new management, you're a little bit fretful, right? You're like, oh no, new management. Are they going to mess this place up? Because I come in here because I like the food, or I like the service, or I like the product. And now they're under new management. Maybe you work for a company that is under new management that was, that's been bought and sold and you're wondering what the new boss is like and he or she lives out of town and you got to report to somebody new. You got to experience the... Uh, the problems, the vexations, the uncertainties that come with this phrase under new management. I talked this week on Monday with a young man who opened up his suitcase and told me some stuff about his childhood and, and to his young adulthood. He opened up the suitcase of family of origin and he told me about when his parents, when he was very, very young, his parents divorced and uh, not long after that, a, no, a new man came in and dated his mom and moved in and married and uh, not long after that, um, he left and um, a new man came in and then one night the mom woke him up and said we're leaving and they left and they went to a new place and a few months after that a man another man came in and married his mom and he said that there was always a, a new man with new rules and a new way and he, he was talking about his life of pain of just being under new management and Daniel knew this as well when we catch up with Daniel it's in the first chapter of Daniel and he's a teenager and he's with his friends, and he's in Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem. He's growing up there as a teenager. He's uh, committed to civil service. He's got a plan, I got a pipeline of being a leader uh, in the government, and he's incredibly intelligent. And, but the Babylonians come through. They had conquered the Egyptians and such. Their plan was world domination, and they said, oh, by the way, let's go to Judea. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's conquer. They came through, they conquered, conquered and they captured and they took them to Babylon. It's one of the unique stories in all the Bible in that it's written to people in a hostile environment. And we pose the question in weeks one and two, and I do it again today, are we living in Jerusalem or are we living in Babylon? And you can only look at the world around us, even in America, and I know you opine for the past and long for days of you know 1955 when for some of us life was more simple and our nation uh, was less secular, but we are living in Babylon. The question is, can we thrive in Babylon? Can we live in a faithful way, in a godless culture, in a way that's winsome and not self-righteous and sanctimonious and obnoxious? And we see this wonderful example in Daniel. So it, the Babylonians conquer, they capture, they carry away, and Daniel has to learn about living under new management. The Babylonian king. Daniel 1.8, I've quoted it each week, Daniel purposed in his heart, he made up his mind ahead of time, Daniel 1.8, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. You say, Robert, what's up with the diet? Just little dietary things. Uh, Daniel knew that to, to pursue this Babylonian way of living with the food he would eat would be to worship another god, and Daniel was unwilling to do that. And so we see his commitment, but we see how he went from king to king to king. Daniel progresses very fast. If you were here last week, it's shocking. It's important to know that as you read these first six chapters, but it, it, tr it transpires very, very fast. And we go from Daniel being a, um, a teenager to Daniel being uh, an old man. And that's where, we, that's where we pick it up today. Daniel is in Babylon, but then Babylon got captured. And you know, we went from King Nebuchadnezzar, a cruel and evil man, to a different king, King Bel Belshazzar, as we looked at last week. And then now in, we're in chapter six at King Darius. Now the Persian empire, they took over the Babylonians. And it is, um, let's go back to that. It's very, very massive empire. And they have a satrapial form of government. They have different satraps. There's 120 of them. 
Now, we have counties. Y'all know 930 was really good. How many counties do we have in Mississippi? Say it out loud. We have 82 counties. My wife's from California. She can't pronounce half of them. But we, we, there's 120 satraps uh, in this uh, uh, empire. And by the way, historians label the Persian Empire as the last great empire of the ancient Near East. And Daniel was one of three leaders under the king. He was one who oversaw uh, 40 different satraps. So he oversaw them and he, he ascended into leadership because he led so well. We've seen incredible qualities and traits in uh, this man, Daniel, as a teenager and into later uh, in his life. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3, let's pick it up there. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. We don't talk this way. I bet you haven't bragged on somebody and said they have an extraordinary spirit. We would say they have an excellent attitude. Now that'll preach. How's your attitude? How's your attitude at work? What do other people say about your attitude at work? Daniel didn't aspire to be a, a prophet, priest, or king, apostle, or teacher, an evangelist, or preacher, or anything like that. He was called into civil service. He was called to work in the marketplace, uh, which is a great uh, reason for all of you to study the book of Daniel, learn more about his life and the way he impacted people in a winsome way, in a wise type of way. But he had a great attitude. I'm, I'm going to break Daniel up, this chapter 6, into three scenes. And the first scene is scene 1, and we'll call it the worker. Scene 1 is the worker. This is what it says about Daniel in the fourth verse. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding uh, the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption. For he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Um, Brandon Presley and Tate Reeves worked really hard to find charges of corruption in the other person. And did you see the debate? I hope you didn't watch it. But uh, they brought out those charges of corruption. You're lying. No, you're lying. No, you're for this. No, you're for that. On and on and on. And that's what politics, what they do in politics, they dig up dirt and sling mud. I don't understand the molecular structure of that change, but, but they dig up dirt and then they sling mud. And this is what uh, they wanted to do to Daniel. They wanted to dig up dirt. There's a common saying or common principle in our world today that the best people are going into private, into the private sector, not the public sector, because in the public sector, people will dig up dirt on you and no one can withstand the scrutiny. Now, I want to say when a preacher or somebody says that, no one can stand the scrutiny of, a, of digging deeper, to, you know, I want to say, amen, no one can withstand the scrutiny, but that's just not true. You and I can live in a way where we could have an extraordinary spirit, we could have an excellent attitude, where people could dig up and not find us to be a lying person. That's possible. I hope we can uh, entertain that. Daniel's work, um, what we see is a great principle for all of us. The younger you are, the better it is for you to listen to this. If you're an older person, then hey, it's, uh, it's still not too late. And by the way, let me say this. Daniel, was, uh, we pick him up in chapter 6. He's in his 80s. He's in his 80s. And the older I get, the more I want to preach this. But God still uses old people. God still uses people that are well-seasoned. Our church in the years and decades ahead, only God knows, but we'll be better and healthier and more vibrant if we have older people who've been faithful to the Lord, older people who've had stories of train wrecks and sin and restitution and recovery and uh, uh, you know, deliverance and all. We, we need older people. And you look at some bullet points of history. Uh, it's pretty significant when you think that Benjamin Franklin uh, at 
70 years old, signed the Declaration of Independence. At 79 years old, Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa. At 89 years old, Michelangelo painted the final uh, judgment. Um, on and on, we see older people at later ages doing things. At 90 years old, Thomas Edison was still filing inventions with the U.S. Patent Office. And at 65 years old, uh, Harlan Sanders opened his first Kentucky Fried Chicken. Can we get an amen for that? So here's Daniel in his 80s. Let's not give up on our old people. And if you're approaching old age, God may not be through with you yet. And so we see Daniel for decades had exhibited this excellent um, attitude, this extraordinary spirit where he combined good hard work with good character. My brother-in-law lives in Pacific Palisades in Los Angeles. He married Susan's middle sister. She's the, my wife is the oldest of three. And he does uh, wells and water and such all, all around the world. And Michael can tell you that, you know, there's instances when, you know, you, you, there's the above ground part. And I know we talked about icebergs last week, but staying with a similar analogy. But uh, with these wells, they can see what's, you know, if the well's producing water, they can see what's above the ground. Uh, how high it is, does it meet code or regulation? Is it bringing clean sanitary water? But there's a whole lot underneath that, those water wells in Africa and different parts of the world that they help build. And underneath there, sometimes when there's something on the surface that's not right, they look deeper and see that there was something faulty. They didn't build to code or they, they cut corners or they look past something. And what's true of Michael's work around the world, my brother-in-law, is true in some sense in all of our work. I believe that even if you're not digging wells and providing sanitary, clean water around the world, I do believe there's a part of your job that's very public and above the ground and a part of your job that's below the ground that no one can see. You kind of get that with me. I don't know what all of you do. I can scan the room and name a lot of your occupations, but I don't know what all of you do, but all of you have an idea of what I do, and this is the most public part of my job. It's uh, quite a spectacle, isn't it, to preach and to be in front of people uh, like yourselves, educated people who will fact-check me if I say something wrong. But this is the very public part, and you know what I know is if I work hard during the week and educate myself and just get after it, that I can try to deliver a sermon. Uh, it, it, it's for God's glory and for our good, I hope. But it's very public, and I can be very mindful of it. I feel the pressure. I feel the pressure building. It starts on Thursday night or Friday, and I can already, no matter where I am, even if I'm marrying you, I'm not thinking about marrying you. I'm thinking about the sermon that I'm going to be preaching uh, the next day. It just goes with me. If I'm, at a, if I'm at a party Friday night, I'm thinking about the weight of Sunday morning. It stays with me. That's why I need a nap on Sunday. I think about it, how I don't want to mess it up, and I want to do the best job that I can. But this is, in the end, a smaller part of my job. In some ways, it's the easy part of my job. You see, there's, a, there's a, another segment that not everybody sees. My wife sees a lot of it. The elders see some. Some of the staff see a good bit of it. But there's just another part of my job that you don't see. And there's another part of your job that we don't see. And I think what we do see in Daniel is that above the well, his life was an oasis. His wife was a stream. His life produced fresh water his life brought honor and glory to God, but you look deeper, and he, he, here was a life who didn't cut corners. And so we see in Daniel, we see his work, and we see his character. Do your job. Work hard at your job. Not long ago, someone came to me. They were working for another church in our state, and they had been let go. 
and they would stroll into the office at 10 o'clock and check personal email and go to lunch for a couple hours and come back and be gone by 3 o'clock. And they were surprised. This young staff member was surprised when he was let go of his job. I was not. I was not. I wanted to provide some comfort, but I wanted to ask him fact-based questions so that maybe he could shine a spotlight on how he can do better. Do your job in a way that honors God. Can I remind you, I'm telling some of you for the first time, in the Garden of Eden, when God created things as they should be, injustice, war, poverty, rape, racism, scandals, violence, Hamas, bombing, all of this, all of this was a result of the fall, sin, disease, and death. But work is one of God's good gifts. And we reflect God when we do good work. When we see your work, see your work as an act of love. Not just the public part that people can scrutinize, but the private part. The parts that other people don't see where you could fudge the numbers and cook the books and cut corners. Be honest in your work and it can bring glory to God. Paul said this to the church at Colossae. And whatever you do, whether you're an entry-level worker or an executive, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or someone that goes out in the marketplace, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. He would go on to say in verse 23 of chapter 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily. That means to put your heart in it as unto the Lord. What if you viewed your work as a way to honor God? Man, when you do, when you bring an excellent attitude to your work and good character to follow and you work hard, people notice, don't they? You know, you're, you can think of somebody right now that doesn't have a good attitude at work, that's demonstrated some traits of poor character. Don't let that be you. If you follow Jesus, surrender your work to God. Surrender. Remember in the garden, God did not say sing, sing in a choir or stay here and pray. God, God put him to work because we reflect God's glory when we work. When there's chaos and confusion and we bring order, we bring God's glory. And he's made you uh, that way. If you don't believe me and, you know, and you're happy in a relationship, just quit your job and hold hands with the person you're in love with and see what they think of you. Just say, oh, honey, you're so good. I, just, relationships matter more than anything. I'm just going to stay here and hold hands with you. I mean, we have love. I don't have my job anymore, but we have love. That person that you're holding, they're going to say, well, I love you. But you, but you go back and get that job, or you go get you another job, or a better job. You're made to work. You're made to work. That's how God made you. So we go, we see in verse 5, then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Th these are conspirators. The, they are setting a trap, and if need be, they'll find something or they'll falsely accuse. They, they couldn't find anything on Daniel because of his character. They went digging in the back alleys to find uh, something. It, when you're watching politicians debate, it's like, did they really find this? Are they lying? You know, you said he's lying, but are you lying about him lying? What, what, what did you find? And they're looking really hard, and they're trying to trick. So we go, from the, uh, we go from the worker to the window. And here we are uh, in the window. I think there's a rap song that goes from the window to the wall. In Daniel, we go from the wall to the window. Chapter 5 was the window, and chapter uh, 6, I'm sorry, it was the wall, and chapter 6 is the, the window. All right, y'all come back to me. Here's the window, and uh, here's Daniel, chapter 6, verse 6, rather. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. May King Darius live forever. They say that all the time. They say it all the time uh, with kings. Verse 7, all the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, uh, the satraps, the advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions, any god or man except you, the king will be thrown into the lion's den. Here's this beautiful part of chapter 6. It's in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, 
He went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Just interesting thing, last week I shared with you that the very phrase writing on the wall emanates, it originates from Daniel chapter 5. Every source uh, tells you that. I was hoping that open windows would also emanate, originate from Daniel chapter 6, but it doesn't. Anyway, but Daniel's window is open and he's praying. And I love the consistency. In the worker, we see integrity. In the window, we see consistency. He prayed. He was consistent in his prayers. This is a prayer that uh, he prayed in 1 Kings. Let me go back because I put a new passage up. That'll distract you. Um, This prayer that he's praying through the open windows, it echoes a prayer that King Solomon prayed in the dedication celebration of Solomon's temple found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 48 and 50, if you want to look at that later. But pretty cool how a lot of the biblical prayers uh, echo prayers that prayed that they you know, prayed uh, before them. Uh, the Jewish people were very um, mindful of their forefathers. We probably need a healthy dose of that in our day. Here's a prayer that he would later pray. I'm, I'm going back to chapter 6, but I'm going to jump real quick to chapter 9. This is the last prayer that Daniel would pray. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen. And Lord, act. What a great prayer. And the premise of the prayer, does your heart ever get proud? Does judgment ever bring you to the prayer closet? Does the craziness of our culture, does a feeling of um, being over-spiritual ever creep into your heart? This is based not on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Who's glad that God is merciful and compassionate? I mean, are, are you glad? A friend just told me after service, man, I, Pastor, I need to talk. I did something really dumb. I need to talk to you. And I'm like, man, that's, that's why we're here. And we want to talk to you. And I want to point him when we have coffee or lunch or he comes by, I want to point him to a God who's abundant in compassion. It's a compassion, it's an abundant compassion that I know as well. And that's the basis of our prayer. So let's jump back. Daniel chapter 9, verse 17 to 19. We're looking at the window and what happens uh, after that. And uh, um, Daniel chapter 9, verse 17, there was the prayer. Uh, back to chapter 6, verse 13. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean, Judean exiles, has ignored you. The king and the edict you signed, for he prays three times a day. They take his faith and make it um, an enemy of the king. They play right into a king's ego. One thing we know about kings, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Cyrus or Darius or whoever the king, Daniel was always under new management. There was always new kings, long live the king, and kings have egos, and they played right to uh, the ego of this king, which takes us to scene three. We move from the worker to the wall to the den, and this is the place uh, where the famous story goes down. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you continually serve, may he rescue you. In verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. Quickly, let me say to you that uh, the king didn't sleep. The the angels didn't sleep. The administrators didn't sleep. Who was the only person that slept that night? Do you know? Only Daniel slept that night. 
man, the older I get, the more I talk to peers and people older than me. And we talk, you know, we talk 15 minutes the next day about how we slept that night. Man, how'd you sleep? You go down the hall, kids are not asking themselves. They didn't get checked into children's church down the, down the hall and say, what was the, tell me about the duration and quality of your sleep last night. Like they never talk about that, but we do because we struggle with sleep. And um, the, the Bible says that uh, in God, as he's our shelter, as he's our high tower, that we can find that our sleep is sweet. And Daniel had a peace in the prayer closet. Daniel's consistency gave him a sense that God, God could perform. God could show out. God could do the thing. Verse 20, when he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lions? They know he's been faithful. Then Daniel spoke with the king, may the king live forever. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I even done any wrong before you, your majesty. Daniel finds God to be a deliverer. He finds him to be a rescuer. Can I just say, not to ruin the moment, but this doesn't always work this way. It doesn't always work this way. I don't want to preach to you a vending machine God where you put a little bit in, three quick prayers a day, and you, you see God, you know, you're getting from God exactly what you pressed, exactly what you want. But I do want to say to you that our God rescues, our God delivers, and Daniel found it to be true. Uh, I'm kind of telling on myself and likely to set myself up to be made fun of later. But, uh, man, I, I followed Matthew Perry's death this week. And I, I watch things maybe like some of you, and I, I'm not a big, you know, paparazzi, TMZ type person. But I, I just have memories there associated with my last days of being single with some, a young group of friends who, you know, barged into each other's apartments. And, um, and I just, only a few months ago, I put his biography up, autobiography. Anybody remember that? I put up Matthew Perry and about friends and lovers and the terrible thing. And I, I was kind of hoping after I preached about him that Matthew Perry would find that God that he talked about. Uh, after um, millions of dollars on treatment, um, after uh, surgery after surgery, and after all the pain that he would find a God who rescues and delivers. In whatever pit you're in, my hope and prayer for you is that you will find a God who delivers, it, delivers you from it. And can I just say, because of the oughtness of it and the greatness of God, if you're in a pit of addiction, get help and pray and pray for God to be your deliverer. He can do that. He can deliver you. You can be rescued. It doesn't, the terrible thing doesn't have to defeat you. And Daniel finds God to be his deliverer. This point says, you know, when we look at the worker, we see integrity and purity. When we, when we look at the window, we see consistency. And when we look at the den, we see courage. We see God giving this man courage. Now notice the effects. And this is what we all long for in our, in our spiritual lives. I issue a decree. This is the king now. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He, for he is the living God. And he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. Here's way, the way God has made you. You say, preacher, you don't know me. Here's the way God has made you. It's the way he's made all of us. Deep down in you is a desire to live differently and make a difference and inspire other people. That's in you. If, you're just, if your spiritual life is just coming to church occasionally walking out these doors and not applying anything that you learn. 
that's going to be boring. And there's no amount of skilled oratory or entertainment value on my part or any other podcast preacher anywhere that could keep your faith or make your faith vibrant if you're not hearing the word and doing something about it. But God has made you to go make a difference in the lives of other people, to live differently and to, to bring an excellent attitude to your work and to watch God work through you. And here's what he sees. The way he lived his life inspired this king. And th that king saw Daniel's God work. Forget Marduk. Forget the gods made of stone and silver and wood and hay and stubble. Forget the gods who cannot work, who have no hands to be active and to deliver. And we need testimonies of rescue and delivery. We need signs and wonders. And I wonder in what way your life and mine can reflect that. In what we hear stories of a man passing away in a hot tub in a, in a, a $15 million mansion. And we wonder about who can overcome. And does, do our lives have to be this way? What we need are stories of seeing God work and saying God worked through this. God provided. God rescued. Uh, God delivered. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be more and more a testimony of that. I want that for you so that you're not stagnant and bored, that your faith is active and powerful and alive and that you're seeing God. And this is the way God has made you. God has made you to live in such a way people will say, I believe in that God. And your life, no matter how you're badly you're beaten up today, your life can inspire others. And I just love that about Daniel. Now, let me go forward with this idea of courage. Daniel had to go through the den to get the decree. We don't have time to preach that. But I do have time to preach this. Without courage, your life will just be a collection of plans and remorse. Man, I'm so glad for the people who've gone before me who had the courage to act when God spoke to them. Remember all the kings, all the under new management that Daniel had to live with? They were looking for people to come in to explain their riddles, to interpret their dreams, to solve their problems. And only the voice of God only Daniel had a God who could speak, who is speaking, who will speak. And we see um, the courage to act and to believe that God is able in Daniel's life. Your life, will it'll just be a collection of plans and remorse. Plans, oh man, Woo, I want this. Oh man, then I want to see this. Oh, and then I want to have this, and then I want this, and then I want this. And then it'll end up being, I wish I had. I wish this had happened. I wish I had acted. And at the core, what you're saying is you wish you had the courage. You wish you had the courage. Without courage, your life will become a collection of plans and remorse. Some of you went to the Civil Rights Museum yesterday as a church. And you walked through there and you saw stories of women and men who had courage to act amidst difficulty. And I'm so glad they did. For people to say, this is not right. This is not what a godly uh, state looks like. This is, this is an injustice, and God values all people, and this is where we need to stand, and this is what we need to do, and we need to stand together for a more united people, for a united states. I'm so glad they had the courage. I want to ask you, do you have the courage? Courage is not conjured up in the moment. It's developed through a lifetime of small, consistent decisions. As the song crew comes up, and we round toward the home, it's easy for us to think about the moment when we fall into the den or the lion jumps out at us or we're having this difficulty or adversity and we think and we hope 
that in that moment, the adrenaline will pulsate through our veins and we'll have the courage in that moment to act. But I want to tell you that courage is not conjured up in the moment. It's developed through a lifetime of small, consistent decisions. If you're not making the right decisions, you won't have the courage. You'll buckle under the weight. You won't believe that God is a deliverer and that he can rescue. So as you stand today, I want to ask you your default setting for difficulty. When, when, when adversity is in front of you, some of us panic. I mean, we freak out. Some of us are proud. Instead of humble dependence on God, we pursue self-reliance. He's gotten us this far. But what we see in Daniel is prayer. The sweet hour of prayer that bids me from this world's care. It bids me to the Father's throne where my wishes and my wants are made known. It's in this sweet hour of prayer that we can bring everything before God. And by way of testimony, I will tell you, and some of you, man, you're with me, you know this. There's, there's something about prayer. There's a peace in prayer that you can't find anywhere else. Not in yoga or meditation or drinks after work or in the company of friends or in nature. All those things can be good, but there's a peace in prayer that's found nowhere else. And in Daniel, we see this. And so as we close, um, I've heard some really bad sermons in my early years about Daniel being set forth as the hero. And let me tell you, Daniel is not the hero. Daniel foreshadows another man, a God man named Jesus Christ. And in Daniel, like in Jesus, you'll see that conspirators raged against him. That he was trapped and falsely accused and brought before a king, a ruler sentenced to die a violent death and in both stories in both lives a stone was rolled over a cave and only one died and that's our hero Daniel merely overshadows or foreshadows I'm sorry foreshadows Jesus who overshadows it all and we close thriving in Babylon by saying hey we're not living in Jerusalem we're living in a different land and it is in many ways hostile don't go out and be loud and obnoxious and weird. Go out with Jesus. Walk with him and be consistent with him. And look for ways your work and your life and your character can be shaped and surrendered to him. And watch what God does. Watch what he does through you. And the world is starving for that in our day. Father, bless this time, this message, this day, the obedience of your people to attend and be here. And uh, Lord, as we close in seeking you, I pray that we would. Lord, that we would be a people praying for what we've learned and been reminded of and that you would use it in our lives. Lead us more toward consistency and integrity and courage. And when we fail to be reminded that we have a Savior who can roll away the stone, who can work through the hearts of kings to issue decrees, who can save us from the danger and the difficulty. Help us to see that as our greatest opportunity to honor you and to inspire others. In Jesus we pray.
Amen. Before we go, the altar is open. Would you come today if we can pray for you? It was such an honor in our first service to be able to just embrace some people and see some people seeking the Lord. Um, I know you got lunch waiting, but uh, let's be obedient to what God may be doing in you this time.